0: Hey, good morning. How are y'all doing? Um, one, of the, one of the first things I remember about this church when I first started coming here on Sunday mornings um, was just how many compliments you guys get from here in the pulpit. Um, one of the things that David Roundtree just loves to do is talk about how good looking you are from up here. He loves to talk about how much he enjoys being here in front of you and how much he enjoys seeing your faces. And I always kind of suspected that, um, that he was just getting that out of, out of the Psalms, basically. I, I think he's read his Psalms, and he's kind of doing what his namesake does. And he says, you know, he sees, he sees the psalmist profuse in his, uh, in his compliments, and so he brings that to worship. But also, since I've had the few opportunities to, to be up here in front of you guys, I've, I've come to know what a joy it is uh, to be here. And with everything going on, and with everything um, that's been bad in our lives, this place, we talked about entering the sanctuary in the, uh, in the call to worship a little while ago. This place really has been a sanctuary for me, and you people have been um, a people to me and to my family. It's been, it's been really good to have one place where we can go, go away to see you guys, so... I'm just going to echo echo David uh, Roundtree's words. I'm going to echo King David's words and say you guys are a good-looking crowd this morning. I'm glad to see you. I really am. Turn your Bibles with me, if you would, to um, what are we going to do? Jeremiah chapter 31. And I'm going to start reading in verse 31. When I get there, you can be turning. In way of review, last time I spoke, I started off with a little blurb, this was uh, on the 12th, some of you guys were here, it's kind of, it's kind of um, peak vacation season right now, so I know that the crowd that I'm speaking to today is probably not the same crowd that I was speaking to then, that was peak vacation season too. So, um, But last time, just to give you a little idea of where we are, we talked a little bit about the kingdom, and about how the gospel, <clears throat> in its most succinct form is that the kingdom of God is at hand. That's what Jesus said. That's how Jesus summed it up when he came on the scene. The kingdom of God is near. We talked a little bit about how the entirety of Scripture informs us as to what the kingdom of God is from Genesis to Revelation. It's the, the Genesis, the creation account, is all about what the kingdom was originally meant to be and how things were meant to be, how people were meant to live within it. The law and the Proverbs show us how to live, show us how to live um, from a couple different perspectives within God's kingdom as it grows, and it shows us our constant need of grace and mercy, as we sung about already this morning. The histories and the prophets call us to anticipate the coming of the kingdom, and they show us the futility of living in a community without a king, at least without a good king. The Gospels... Show us the king himself as he embodies the character of the kingdom and creates a community that is the nucleus of the kingdom. He dies to pay for the sins of his subjects and rises again ultimately to conquer death as king. He ascends and takes his throne. The book of Acts and the epistles describe the constitution and the growth of the kingdom. And finally, Revelation gives us a vision of the kingdom attaining its complete and final victory over everything that exists. The kingdom incorporates the universe. The Bible is all about a lot of different things. It can't be summed down into into one phrase or anything like that. But one of those very important things is the kingdom of God, and we're called to repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Jeremiah called on the people of God to return to God. And he anticipated a time when the king would come, take hold of people's hearts and lead them back to God. That's from Jeremiah 23 we looked at last time. Well, another thing that the Bible is all about is covenants. They're all over the place. Starting in Genesis and moving on through, over and over and over again, we're reminded that God is entering into covenant with us. This is the constitution of the kingdom. Is It's fitting that our church is named a new covenant because all of God's relationships with his people throughout time have been structured around a covenant. God has always initiated his relationship with his people in ways that are concrete, in ways that are physical and formal. It's like adoption or marriage. The most real and the most meaningful relationships that exist don't just exist internally. It's not just feelings and and kind of a a sense of internal attachment. They exist concretely and physically. They're formalized in wedding ceremonies and wedding rings and um, adoption paperwork. Any of you who have gone through adoptions know that the uh, the legal documents can be never-ending. But the most... The most serious, the most meaningful relationships are those that have formal, tangible elements in the real world. So it is with God's relationship with his people. It exists as a covenant. So with that in mind, let's read Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, and I'll read through verse 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your covenant. Thank you for not leaving us on our own to initiate a relationship with you to make our own little covenants and our own little commitments, but God, thank you for taking hold of us and for, and for continuously renewing your relationship with us forever. I pray, Lord, that, um, that these words would be clear and that their meaning would come across well. In Jesus' name, amen. So first of all, the bad news. This passage starts out with bad news, and last time we started out with bad news as well. Um, Verse 32 says this, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. At Mount Sinai, many hundreds of years before the time of Jeremiah, before the time he wrote and spoke and before all of the events of his life, God had initiated one of those relationships with his people. He had initiated the covenant with the descendants of David. And according to the prophets, God had thrown a wedding. He had married his people. He had brought them into his household. According to the agreement, he would give them all the benefits of being children of God. He would give them um, the right to be close to him all the time. He would give them a land flowing with milk and honey, a good and fruitful land. He would grow their numbers and bless them. And all they had to do was obey his rules. And his rules were good rules. They weren't weren't hard. They weren't um, arbitrary or anything like that. They were good, they were the rules that he laid down, and he was a holy God. But according to this, according to what we just read, they had not obeyed his rules. Over and over again he had disciplined them. and Over and over again he had been kind to them, to bring them back. But they would not obey. Some of the times, some of them would do some of the laws, they would perform them, and that was good. Or were highlights. But most of the time, most of the people would not. And in our own lives, we see that. We've seen, we've tried to follow God at various times and then realize that most of the time, most of us are not following, we're falling away. And over time, the people's hearts grew harder and harder. And it was the saddest, leading to the saddest events in human history. So turn back to chapter 11, where it kind of describes this a little bit more clearly. Um, I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture today. There's just so much that the Bible explains better than I ever could. So just get used to flipping. I'm not going to apologize for it. Um, Let's see. Chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I'll read down uh, through verse 8. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Here are the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant, that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the, from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice, and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers." to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. As at this day, then I answered, so be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently even to this day, obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. But everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Now that last bit there when it says I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, what that's talking about is the curses that came with the covenant. So as a part of this formal agreement that God made with his people, there were punishments for disobedience and they were called curses. And Within within the covenant, disobedience was punished by the curses. The agreement was that if the people of God, children of God, would obey, they would be close to God, and good things would happen to them. If they would not obey God's laws, God would cause faraway kingdoms to come, to take them captive, to take their land, and to make them slaves. Nobody and nothing, then, would be good to the people of God. And they agreed to do this. All they had to do was obey, and they said they would at Mount Sinai. Well, it didn't happen all at once. Their slide to disobedience was long and gradual. It had its ups and downs. God was very patient. Even in the time of Jeremiah, there were still people who were doing good things. Um, In chapter 26, there's uh, an episode where all of the priests and all of the prophets come against Jeremiah, and basically say that the king needs to execute him because he's been proclaiming that God was, was going to punish the children of Israel and they wanted to, to maintain um, the future of, of their temple. Well, even when that happened, even in the midst of that, there were people who rose up and defended Jeremiah. They said, no, 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 look back. Remember the good kings that we had before. Those kings would defend prophets like this. They would defend people who brought the word of God. Even when the the prophets brought bad news, the kings, or the good kings, would defend those prophets. They would spare them and they would listen to them. And so the officials and the people in that episode in chapter 26, they spare Jeremiah. It's like a highlight, It's it's like a flicker of light in the midst of this increasingly darkening trend. And then, But then slowly, the false prophets become louder and louder. Their voices grow, and it's even recorded in here. They're they're false prophecies, and they use these stage props and these elaborate schemes to try to convince the people that they're strong enough to defeat the Babylonians. You know, they have the horns of an ox that they say we're going to gore the Babylonians with these, or they they have the. um, Actually, that might be from Kings. I think it's in both, actually. But anyway, they have a uh, they have a yoke stage prop that they break and say, so we'll break the, break the yoke of the Babylonians. Um, and slowly their voices begin to drown out the voice of the word of God. The voices of the false prophets begin to drown out the voice of Jeremiah, and the, um, the prophets that are actually relating God's message start to be killed. They start to be hunted down and killed because they're, uh, they're accused of colluding with the enemy. And then way down in in chapter 34, there's one last flicker of of light. There's this this time when the king of Babylon is already outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it's all about to come to an end. It's all about to come down. And the king realizes he's in trouble in chapter 34. He's a bad king, but he realizes he's in trouble. So what he does is he says, okay, we're going to make a new covenant. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to free all our slaves. We knew according to the law that we were supposed to do that to begin with. And we haven't done it. And God's punished us. So we're just going gonna to make a covenant with each other, we're all going to enter into it, and we're going to free all our slaves. And they do. They listen, they obey. They say, okay, that's a good idea, let's free all our slaves, let's do it. And it's this glimmer of light, but then very shortly thereafter, I don't know how long it took, they take all their slaves back. I don't know if they capture them by force or they use some sort of economic means to coerce them into subject, uh, subjection or something like that. But they take all the slaves back. It was like they had this moment of hope, this moment of goodness, and then they completely abrogate everything that they've done there. And they walk away from it. And after that, there's no turning back. So, when I read through this, when I think about this, there's one sentence in literature that always comes to my mind. It's not in the Bible, it's a a sentence that exists elsewhere, somewhere. If you guys know where it is, I tried to Google it, I couldn't really, I found a lot of sentences that were like it in like Tolstoy and in um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. There, I know that there's, there's episodes like it in The Lord of the Rings, but there's, there's a scene somewhere out there in um, modern, or semi-modern European literature that uh, in which there's a light of some kind. And I think it happens Actually, in a lot of different books, in a lot of similar scenes, there's a light of some kind. It's either a candle or a gas lamp or uh, a campfire or a fire in a fireplace or something like that. And the protagonist is sitting there with this light right in front of him, and he knows that somewhere outside of the ring of that light, there's a horrible enemy waiting. But the light is somehow kind of protecting him. Either the enemy's afraid of the light itself, or he's able to, f- to defend himself while there is light around. And so as long as the light's there, he's safe, and he knows it. And then this sentence comes in, and it's got a few different forms, but it, uh, it goes something like this. The writer says, the flame flickered, it flared up, and it went out. Isn't that ominous? It's, it's the most ominous-sounding sentence, I think, that's ever been written in the, in the English language. It flickered, it flared up, and it went out. And now there's nothing to protect them. You know, if it had just gone out, maybe you could relight it or something, but when a fire flickers like that, and then it flares up, it's consuming that last little bit of fuel that it has, and then it goes out, and there's nothing left to light. There's nothing there. Whatever it had been burning is gone now. And the enemy, whatever it is, outside in the, outside in the darkness, um, has nothing to stop it. So if, anybody, if any of you can find that, wherever that is, that scene, let me know, because it's been bugging me for days now. I've been searching for it. I can't find it. Anyway, that is what is happening in the hearts of the people of Israel in Jeremiah. Their love for God and their zeal for God, their zeal to follow the law, Their internal ambition is flickering, it flares up right at the end, and then it goes out. Jeremiah says in 3.10, chapter 3, verse 10, Judah did not return with her whole heart, but in pretense. Her passion for God flared up, but it was only in pretense, like some adolescent lover professing his commitment without even really knowing what that means. And then Jeremiah 13:16 through 17 says this: "Give glory to God while <clears throat> sorry, give glory to the Lord your God before He brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, He turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Without a light to guide, evil days are ahead. There will be no way to know what to do. And we've seen this happen many times in the lives of individuals and in nations, in churches and in denominations. Recently, uh, a friend of mine gave me a book and Basically, it's about, um, it's about continuing the Christian walk. But the whole first chapter is just story after story after story. It's a catalog of men who were godly men who started ministry and who did incredible things and who were instrumental in expanding the kingdom of God, and they didn't end well. Their lives flared up with zeal for God but they end up in dark places. They turn to drunkenness or mistresses or whatever. They don't end strong. don't finish strong. Their hearts are hardened. And it's a scary thing. It's a scary thing to see it happen to other people. It's a scary thing to feel it happen in your own heart or to feel it start to happen. Maybe you had zeal and passion once, and that fueled your pursuit of the things of God, but the zeal has burned out and left you empty. And sometimes it it often happens, I think, during during high school or during early college years or late college years when we get puffed up with new knowledge and with uh, a sense of freedom and fun. Our passion goes out for Christ. And sometimes it happens a little bit later on when we become embittered in our relationships or simply bored with the things of God. If our own passion is what we're relying on, it doesn't doesn't get us through, it doesn't pull us there. We break our own little covenants, our own little commitments that we made, and we break the law of God and turn away. Now, sometimes this happens in little ways, where we allow sin to come into our lives and we don't deal with it. Sometimes it happens in big ways where people fall away And they fall away completely, and they die in their sins. Let me be clear about this. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I believe that once God has a hold of your heart, he doesn't let go. And that once you're saved, that's an eternal thing. God doesn't unsave people. But Scripture has many warnings, both the New and Old Testaments, about people who think they are safe. But they're really not. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 10, another long passage I'm going to read through, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 of 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not... Sorry, there's still pages turning, I'll let you guys... I had it marked out in my Bible, and I always forget that not everybody... Yeah, I didn't even... Um, I didn't even tell what, uh, what passages we were going to be looking at this morning, so you guys don't stand a chance of keeping up with me. Um, chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and rose up to play, No temptation has, overcome, has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. And then it, it urges, um, Paul urges the people of Corinth to flee from idolatry. So draw, Paul is drawing a parallel here between the the... Christians at Corinth and the ancient Israelites, basically he's saying this, so you were baptized, right? Well, good. They were baptized too, and many of them were destroyed. So you've taken communion? Good. They ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink, and they were tempted away by sin and destroyed. Don't trust the signs and the seals and use them as an excuse to continue in sin, If this is the case, they will not save you. The sad truth is, there have always been those among us who look just like they are resting in Christ. But they are using the appearance of faith as a cover for not dealing with sin. If you do not turn to Christ, you will ultimately fall away and be destroyed. There are also those of us who are weak in our faith. And we'll hear these words and think to ourselves, how can I ever be sure that I'm saved? I've been there in a, for a lot of my life, spent a lot of my life there. When you read these warnings, you, you question your motives and your, your belief all the way to the end, and you really don't know. Well, in God's economy, in the way God does things, in the, way, in the, the system that he set up, the answer for both groups of people, both groups of people, the people who are Falling away into sin, who are, who are trusting in um, things that will not save them, and for people who are afraid that they're going to fall away into sin or that, that they're, not, they're not going to make it. The answer for both groups is the same, and the answer is always trust Christ. So let's continue reading in Jeremiah 31 back there. And uh, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There it is again. Just like in chapter 23, which we talked about last time on the 12th, God is acting. Not only here has he given us a king, he is also giving us a heart to follow that king. It's laid out in chapter 32. Again, switch over real quick. Chapter 32, um, verses 40 through 44, I believe. says this, I will make with them, sorry it's 40 through 41, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul He's the one who gives us hearts to fear Him. The law that the covenant was based on was a beautiful thing. The, the psalmist in, in 119 and in other places goes over and over and over again how wonderful the law was. And that covenant that it was based on was a good covenant between God and His people, but it had one single defect. And this uh, Paul gets into this in Romans, but... That whole covenant had one single defect. It wasn't in the law. The law was good. It says that over and over again. It came from God. But the defect of the old covenant was this, that it could be broken by either party. If one party failed, then the covenant was broken. And God's people broke it. We broke it. All of us have broken, have not followed his law. We have the indwelling sin and the the particular sins that cause us to break that law. And none of us could have kept it if we were in the, in the place of the children of Israel. Just like either a husband or a wife can commit adultery or abandonment and break up a marriage covenant, even so the covenant given by God had to be kept by both parties to remain valid and meaningful. The new covenant is better than the old, not because the law is no longer meaningful or important, but because it is God himself who takes on the work of making his people able to follow it of keeping his people so what does this mean for us should we then sit in our sins waiting for God to drag us into righteousness and faith or should we wallow in fear questioning every motive of our hearts and wondering if we truly belong to Christ certainly not By no means. May it never be. The answer is to turn to Christ. Look at chapter 31, verse 17, verses 17 through 20. It says this. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back, that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. Another translation for that word some of you have is, I repented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Verses 18 and 19, they kind of describe what God is looking for in his people. The name Ephraim represents the whole people of God here. This is what turning to God looks like. First, it is recognition of our own sin, of the shamefulness of our own sin that our sin deserves discipline and judgment. You disciplined me, and I was disciplined. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. When God softens your heart, it leads you to understand how shameful sin is. There's a recognition here that sin is a product of a heart turned away from God, not a product of the environment. But then he once the people to turn to him. Bring me back. They know where their salvation comes from, for you are the Lord my God. So if you're struggling with sin and shame, trust that Christ has something far better for you than that sin, something far better than that shame. Back in chapter 3, I think this is the last time we'll be flipping over. Um, Go back to chapter 3 in verse 22. It says this. Return, O faithless sons. 322. I will heal your faithlessness. Behold, we come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly the hills are a delusion, the orgies on the mountains... Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. God calls on his people to return and they recognize and confess that all of the things they have been trusting in, for freedom or for fun or for pleasure or for um, security, whatever that is, it's all a delusion. They're meaningless. They're not even really there. And so it is with everything that we come up with to replace God. God. No scheme of man can save, no fun or freedom can satisfy, no sin can end boredom or bitterness. They're all nothing. But just like the nothingness that is the lack of oxygen or the nothingness that is the lack of food or the lack of heat, just like that is a deadly, deadly thing, even so sin is an absence that will kill you. So if you're struggling With whether or not you belong to Christ, whether or not you are truly saved, the answer is still the same. Trust Christ. He will save you. No level of devotion or mental toughness or purity of thought can save you. Only he can. Now, to my knowledge, Jeremiah 31 is the only place in the Old Old Testament where the term New Covenant is used. Um, There's places where New and Covenant are kind of separated within the same paragraph, but as far as I know, there's a lot of places that deal with the same subject, but as far as I know, um, chapter 31 that we've just talked about today is the only place here where it actually says New Covenant. Um, I could be wrong about that. My Bible software is the free kind that you get online, so I wasn't able to actually check myself on that one, so feel free to correct me. But then the gospel in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus picks it up. At the Last Supper, and Paul quotes Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11. When Jesus institutes the new covenant, he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. This cup we are about to drink is symbolically the blood of Christ. His death secures our way to God, and he is really present in this meal. As we take this meal, we're entering again into covenant with yeah. him. So don't trust this wine and this bread to save you, but allow the wine and the bread to point you to Christ. That's what it was intended to do. He's here and ready to meet with you. Trust that his way is the better way and that he is the one who saves you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for your blood. I thank you again for your sacrifice, that you have initiated a sure way For us to come before you and to meet with you here. I pray, God, um, that you would root out faithlessness or sin among us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us rest in the goodness of your son and the mercy that he shows. In Jesus' name, amen.